and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. I am Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, coming to you from the place where it all began in 1981, the mothership as Father would call it. And of course, uh, your emailing, your questions to us is so important at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com because we use them on every program. And of course, check out all the Father Spitzer's websites. There's the magiscenter.com, incrediblecatholic.com, which we've used many times on the program, and Purposeful Universe, an interesting one as well, purposefuluniverse.com, a little something different for those checking things out for the first time. Father Spitzer's Universe, of course, is always available on the EWTN On Demand page and our EWTN YouTube channel. Of course, it's in demand. Father Spitzer's on it. We recently added on expanded hour-long Life on the Rock, a special program focused on the Father Stu movie. Uh, and Father Mark does some great interviews in that. Check that out. And that's on our on-demand page. We just added that. Our topic today, Two Common Defenses Against Evil from Father's very popular best-selling book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, All Things Catholic Book of the Month. For April, Answering the Questions of Jesus by the late great father, Andrew Apostoli, a book that was overlooked, needs to be read, and you get some great information there. Father Andrew, he was terrific. Speaking of terrific priests, we've got our own Father Spitzer. It's great to see you again, Father, and welcome to the Thanks. show, as they say. Oh, thanks, Doug. Great to be here. And let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many blessings you give us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to participate in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say and hear will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Very good. I have a question for you here, Father. I, I just—it's sure. a quickie. Uh, Douglas Murray, kind of a secular uh, thinker, but kind of an interesting fellow uh, from England, now living in the United States. But he's got a new book uh, coming out. A couple of his other books are very popular. This one called, uh, basically, about the West and its war on the West. Uh, basically talking about Western civilization, but he had a quote, which I, quote, I want to get your response. He says, the West withdrawal from Christianity has left another vacuum, Murray argues, now being filled by a religion of anti-racism. Kind of interesting. He says, this new religion constitutes something to do, writes Murray, and is appealing because it gives people, quote, unquote, the opportunity to treat other people badly beneath the guise of doing good. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure about you know uh, uh, giving you know it's it's obviously reverse mm. uh, discrimination is what he's right. referring to so that uh, um, you know uh, one um, race can call another race bad because of their um, uh, superior position supposedly right. and so. Um, uh, that uh, is, of course, uh, kind of a hatred in reverse, uh, which really doesn't solve anything because Christianity uh, basically asked for forgiveness of past sins of people. And I think the way things were done in South Africa and that peaceful transition by Desmond Tutu and others was probably the better way to go mm -hmm. rather than seeking retribution 
um, which, uh, of course, doesn't go anywhere because violence begets violence and vengeance begets vengeance. So um, it's interesting that a secular thinker uh, right. would bring this out, uh, but I don't think uh, the vacuum is just being filled, uh, I, I might say, by um, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, sort of um, uh, you know, anti-racism philosophy, um, but uh, even more by a secular philosophy that really does say human beings can be absolutely fulfilled uh, without God, without mm -hmm. an absolute context, an absolute meaning, an absolute purpose in life, and an absolute anchor of being. And so, of course, if you really believe that mm -hmm. and you try to live that, you're going to wind up with what St. Augustine you know, found out a long time ago. Uh, you know, life is really brutish, ugly, and short. And the only way out of that brutish, ugly, and shortness, uh, to quote Hobbes, uh, you know, and put it into Augustine's mouth, mm -hmm. is to recognize that God is our ultimate fulfillment. He is perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect beauty, and perfect home. And as such, God alone can be our absolute meaning, our absolute significance, our absolute freedom, our absolute anchor, our absolute purpose in life, our absolute everything. He is it. We come from Him. We go to Him. Our fulfillment is in Him. And our hearts will be restless, said Augustine. That means to say, just in anxiety and despair, until they rest in Him. And that, of course, is our... Um, Mm -hmm. Our uh, paradox of today, we always right. seem to have to learn the hard way. Right. We always seem to have to go for the secular idol. The secular idol will always disappoint us. Then we'll get really upset, very anxious, make war on each other, and then, of course, come back mm -hmm. to our senses and say, where did God go? Let's right. do it the easy way, and let's just try right. and find God, this absolute center in our lives and in our very souls. Right. Let's find Him and then move toward him so our hearts do Absolutely. not need to be restless. Right, and as you point out, obviously, there is, there's greater uh, issues than just that, but I think he's thinking in terms yeah. of that being used as a particularly yeah. powerful club that tends yeah. to be everything, you know, these days. It's oh, your, yeah. The first thing that comes out is, well, if you don't agree with me, basically, you're a bigot yeah. in, in, in fashion yeah. or form, or yeah. you're a white supremacist yeah. or something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of what you were talking about, the use of terms, uh, there was an article in the Catholic World Report uh, based on a book by a Dr. Carl R. Truman, uh, which was The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self-Cultural Amnesia. And in, in the interview, uh, he talks about, they, they ask him a question, they say, and, and I was interested in your response, in general, how are freedom and liberty understood in 2022 compared to, say, the 1950s or the 1770s. And he mm -hmm. says, when Thomas Jefferson declared that it made no difference to him how many gods his neighbor believed in, it was because it neither picked his pocket nor broke his leg. He was assuming in the notion of freedom that focused on the right to physical safety and the right to own property. His notion of selfhood saw oppression as constituted by a denial or privation of those things. He goes on to say, today, we operate with the notion of the self that places far more emphasis on our psychological states. Do we feel happy? That rather broadens the notion of oppression to the point where, yes, our neighbors' beliefs might harm us because they might imply that we are wrong about something. Freedom is now increasingly the freedom not to be offended, something that renders old freedoms of speech and religion far more controversial. 
Oh, yeah, no, I do think he actually has a point mm. uh, because the idea of freedom uh, is no longer just I am a law unto myself, but I have a right uh, not to be um, offended by anyone. But that goes actually far back into history, much further than we might imagine. Because in a way, the whole idea that life is supposed to be perfectly just and fair, uh, you know, is always present in, in every uh, generation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, our fathers normally taught us, as my father did, well, life isn't <laughs> perfectly fair. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to figure out how to deal with this in a positive way. Of course you want to remedy injustices in the world and do the best that you can to do that. Of course you want to avoid injustices and unfairness in your own life by trying to be prudent and shrewd in your affairs. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you've got to also deal with the fact that this life is not what it, it, you know, life is about. Mm -hmm. Life is about eternity. Life is about perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home. Life is about absolute meaning and absolute love. That's what life is about. And of course, if you are going to say that this life alone and all of the vagaries of this life and all of the finitude of this life is all there is, then you are going to be perpetually disappointed and perpetually offended and perpetually irritated by all of those imperfect beings out there that cannot sustain your desire for perfection in this world alone. Perfection will only come from God. It'll only come in heaven. Yes, we can make steady improvements in our own lives to try and be better towards others, more loving to others. But at the end of the day, perfection will not come. There will not be any freedom from offense. There will always be the possibility. And of course, the more and more we get thin-skinned in this culture, the more and more we're so offended by everything that happens, the more weak, as it, uh, we might put it, we become psychologically and emotionally uh, because of the expectation of perfection from imperfect beings that surround us. The more thin-skinned we get, the more aggression there's going to be, the more offense, the more violence begetting violence, the more vengeance begetting vengeance. All we're going to do with all of this as it were, being offended by everybody, even people who unintentionally mm -hmm. say something to us. The more we do it, mm -hmm. the more we're actually going to build a culture of aggression around us. A culture of resentment always moves into a culture of retribution, and a culture of retribution moves into a culture of aggression. Right. It's going to produce a whole lot of social agitation, and that's not good for any culture. Absolutely. Goes on to hear the interview asks him, he says, in the book you talk about Descartes, Rousseau, Hegel, and Nietzsche, kind of an interesting group there. And he said, yeah. oh, he says, <laughs> but, you know, we all know different things they say and we hear their names, but don't really understand who they are. So people should watch uh, Saints versus Scoundrels with Ben Weicker because we expose yeah, many yeah. of these guys on that program. Yeah. But uh, he says, all of these figures give self-conscious voice in their different ways to assumptions that make up the intuitive notion of the modern self. Examining their thought thus allows the reader to understand the nature and implications of a conception of selfhood that most of us simply take for granted today. What binds them together is a focus on human psychology in a manner that grants authority to our quote-unquote inner space. And it is that authoring of the inner space of our thought and feelings that really marks the modern self off from its predecessors. 
Yeah, that's actually a profound insight. Right. I mean, in, in many ways, um, um, what he is saying was elucidated by a guy named Philip Reef, yeah. way back in the late 1960s, and he wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. It never made it to the bestseller list because uh, it was a very complex book, actually, and, and entailed a lot of, uh, uh, you know, very deep psychoanalytic uh, uh, analysis and, and a lot of deep philosophical analysis. And, and But what Reef was saying is essentially uh, what this author is saying. He's basically saying, once you let the therapeutic assumption get off the ground, once you think in a way that there is an entitlement out there mm -hmm. that you should not be hurt by others, that the world should be as it were just, once you predicate everything on your emotional health rather than on the truth, the cure has a, your cognitional health if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. once you base you know, the, 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 uh, the goodness of life, success of life, the quality of life, once you begin to base it on the free flux of feelings and emotional states rather than you know the art uh, of cognitional uh, you know r or rigor trying to get uh, to a, a truth and listening yes of course to the to the feelings that are within us but also to that intuition that pull what C.S. Lewis might call that bright shadow mm -hmm. that is in all reality and nature around us that's pulling us ever and ever uh, you know closer to God as we look around us and we sense even in the chirp of birds or in the scene of mountains or ocean as you might find in California you, you begin to see something that pulls you beyond the ocean itself something of joy that he calls it something of mystery that pulls us into it once you kind of abandon these more profound things this desire for perfect love truth and goodness and beauty and peace that we've been talking about once you shy away from there and go into the flux of feeling to find the meaning of life my gosh your meaning of life is going to change every single solitary day and it's not going to just change every day uh, it's also going to change every minute and moreover every time you go into a relationship with somebody your mood is going to determine whether your relationship with them is right instead of whether you're being truthful and good and loving to that person as Christ directed instead of looking to Christ as our anchor you look for some sort of emotional uh, mm -hmm. you know good feelings and and reef I, I gotta tell you that, that book was really prescient um, mm -hmm. it was a very very uh, uh, interesting book and so uh, I, I'd say that he's coming at it now from this new 2022 angle uh, mm -hmm. that we've uh, brought you know the same triumph of the therapeutic right back uh, right. Uh, you know into a, a new cult of selfhood and so I think he's, he's right on the marker mm -hmm. I really do Right. I always thought, having a special needs child, I always thought that they took yeah. what was being helpful to those who actually needed these kinds of therapies and then projected them on to the entire society. Oh, yeah, because Freud, you know, made a, a psychoanalytic, uh, um, you know, uh, context out of abnormality. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, he was looking basically at 
you know, abnormal conditions and then trying to abstract back from that to what normalcy should be. Mm -hmm. uh, really, you ought to do the, the reverse, mm -hmm. uh, more philosophical, theological approach. What is the ideal of man? What are we called to? Mm -hmm. Something that we might find in a secular context from Aristotle or baptize the Aristotelian context uh, by St. Thomas Aquinas or the, uh, Augustine baptizing Plato, mm -hmm. who really did look at the transcendent ideal for human beings. The, these were the guys who really did discover uh, these five transcendentals of perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being. And so uh, when you really think about it, they are the ones that, that kind of forged it. Then when Christ comes along and defines, Jesus Christ comes along and defines what love really is, what good and evil really is, because of course Plato had an insight into the good as a metaphysical entity, but boy, that sharpness of what good consists in, you know, that really needed Jesus Christ. That sharpness of what true love really consists in, in the Beatitudes, we really needed Jesus Christ. Socrates couldn't do that, and Plato couldn't do that, and Aristotle couldn't do that. In fact, we can see real differentiation and aberrations, right, that, that, were, that were really present. And so in a, in a way, I, I think, um, you know, with Jesus sort of, uh, you know, correcting this and giving us an aim at what goodness and love really are, you put that into that metaphysical context mm -hmm. discovered by Plato and Aristotle, that's where you begin with a human being and a human psychology. You don't begin with abnormality and abstract your way out of it to normalcy. And so I think that's uh, been a problem ever since, uh, you know, Rogerian psychology mm -hmm. uh, was sort of baptized. And by the way, in some, you know, religious orders right. as well, I might point out in the Gallagher. Destroyed Gallagher's, them. Uh, right. Destroyed them. No. And uh, not just the Rogerian, but uh, uh, it goes back to the Freudian roots of the entire uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, an uh, experiment, right. and then uh, of course, uh, you know, finally we got to the triumph of the therapeutic and the triumph of the culture of narcissism, right. which, by the way, you know, it's interesting that Philip Reif, uh, you know, who is more or less, you know, uh, uh, looking at this from a secular context, and and uh, originally, um, uh, you know, uh, the culture of narcissism. Uh, you know, written by basically a Marxist, uh, you know, originally, now he's mm. not of, of that ilk, but uh, when you put it all together, you begin to see that these things were predicted again and again. Mm. Uh, you know, they're all going back to one big, huge problem. Secularism will never satisfy us. We are transcendent by our very nature. We're looking for perfect truth, love, goodness, mm -hmm. beauty, and being by our very nature. We're looking for absolute meaning, not just some relative meaning, by our very nature. Yet we always seem to be caught up in that great lie, mm -hmm. you know, that, that is uh, given to us, you know, that somehow, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can manufacture uh, an absolute meaning from a context that's this worldly alone. Mm -hmm. And that, unfortunately, right. will take us nowhere. We need to turn to Christ to get the definition of goodness and love. We're not going to get it from a philosopher, brilliant as Plato and Aristotle may be. Ultimately, they can only bring us to the, you know, to the doorstep of what justice might be. To bring it to fruition, God had to come into the world and really tell us mm -hmm. uh, what it meant. And of course, because of that, and the church's interpretation of Jesus' moral teaching, I think we've got a chance uh, to continue uh, progressing
missing in civilization, but to the extent that we abandon Jesus' teaching, I think we are left right. bereft of the whole context uh, that God created us for. And if we do that, I'm afraid that we can only become more and more decadent and putting our hands and ourselves into the hands of these uh, secular uh, right. philosophers and psychologists is going to do nothing but bring us to depravity at the end of the day. And that depravity, as I said before, brings with it aggression and, um, you know, real frustration. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just take a look at politics right. today. Absolutely. Never more di divided uh, in our um, political history. Absolutely. And, if, and speaking of experiments, I saw this and I thought, did Father Spitzer conduct a new experiment? It says, new scientific <laughs> technique dates Shroud of Turin to around mm -hmm. the time of Christ's death. And I saw an Italian scientist, Liberetto de Caro, I'm not sure I pronounced mm -hmm. his name, using mm -hmm. some new technique called the X-ray method of research and claims that his studies coincide with mm -hmm. traditional Christian dating back to around the time of Christ's death and resurrection using something called the wide-angle x-ray scattering. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, uh, yeah, actually that, uh, um, that scattering technique is actually, it can produce um, um, a very accurate dating. And um, I might point out that uh, this scattering technique is um, different enough from the three techniques used by Giulio Fonti about uh, 15 uh, years ago. Uh, he did an infrared, uh, Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, uh, a Raman laser spectroscopy, mm -hmm. and a mechanical tension and compressibility test, and came up with a similar sort of dating around 50 AD. Now that you've got this scattering technique, uh, which doesn't, de um, the, the spectroscopy depends on the excitation of molecules uh, to see if certain kinds of uh, residual enzymes and elements are present uh, in the linen. The scattering technique uses another uh, approach uh, to dating, which does not depend on the, the excitation of molecules and looking at you know these um, you know these elements that decay over the course of time, right? Uh, it, it looks at a slightly different method uh, for doing this uh, to be explained um, uh, in another. Uh, a context. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the main thing is now we've got a, a really a fourth dating test uh, that puts it uh, to 50 AD or so. Right. So the main thing uh, that's important here is that carbon dating is not the only way of doing this. And if indeed the image on the shroud was produced by the nuclear disintegration uh, of the body in a low temperature nuclear explosion with the light and, and boom that mm -hmm. would accompany it, if that really is the method, then you would have gotten a lot of um, uh, neutrons that would have been blasted into uh, the nitrogen on the linen of, the, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. there's nitrogen in, in, in cellulose in, in, in the uh, compound that c mm -hmm. constitutes linen. And so this nitrogen, you know, the N14 that's sitting there in that cloth, all of a sudden you blast it with neutrons and what do you get c14 carbon 14 and of course you could get a plethora of carbon 14 which could throw off any dating test mm -hmm. so we've, if this really was the method from which the radiation that produced the image you know came from that neutron flow would probably throw off a carbon dating uh, going forward so mm -hmm. what we're dealing with then is we're going to have to get 
um, you know, somebody to uh, uh, do these other techniques for dating, and I think then comparing them. Uh, um, but I, I do think, yes, it's yeah. one more really good piece of evidence that dates the shroud to the time of Jesus. It corresponds with other dating tests. And of course, uh, you know my whole thing on the face cloth of Oviedo. Right. We have a historical provenance of that that goes back to 616 AD. Well, that, I mean, it's clear that the shroud and the face cloth of Oviedo touched the same bloody face that died with a crown of thorns and was, uh, you know, uh, very much disfigured um, by the, uh, the beatings uh, that, that this person received. Right. Well, if it touched the same face, and, and the face cloth of Oviedo for sure goes back to 616 A.D., mm -hmm. then you have to, uh, you know, basically admit that the shroud goes back to 616 A.D. or before. Right. And now we've got one more test that lines up with the other ones mm -hmm. that are saying this thing goes right back to the time of Christ. Of course, the, uh, the carbon dating that was done in 1988 has been completely de debunked by Tristan Casabianca and his team who examined the raw data from the, um, uh, from the sample uh, that was taken and then dated uh, by the labs in Zurich and um, Los Alamos and Oxford. Mm -hmm. So uh, that dating test is completely debunked by the variegation stratification uh, within those samples. Uh, there's no way, said uh, Casabianca, that you can date that back to the Middle Ages. And Ray Rogers discovered it from the same, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, chemical uh, examination of the samples that came from that point on the shroud where the sample was taken for the 1988 right. dating. There were cotton fibers uh, embedded in there uh, with a, a you know gum dye mordant that only went back to the Middle Ages. Clearly the mending that was done by the sisters is influencing that dating from that mm -hmm. very controversial spot. So you put all this stuff together, that carbon dating may never provide us. If, like I said, if nuclear disintegration produced the radiation um, that, that gave rise to the image on the shroud, it would have produced a neutron flow. The neutron flow would have combined with the N14 producing a carbon isotope, C14. And um, it, we can test, though, in the future, we'll mm. be able to know uh, whether um, the radiation from the body was produced by uh, high um, intensity, high frequency, um, um, you know, uh, um, radiation, ultraviolet radiation is what we call it, uh, or, you know, about six to eight billion watts worth, or a complete nuclear disintegration right. of the body, uh, which, of course, both sources of radiation will be totally miraculous, right? You got a whole mm -hmm. body's worth of stable uh, nuclear, um, you know, uh, uh, nucleuses, excuse me, stable atomic nuclei, and they're all, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going to disintegrate simultaneously? I don't think so. I mm -hmm. mean, there's going to be a miracle right there with a little bit of a boom, uh, you know, a, right. a nice explosion and a big, huge flash of light, or you're going to have a very high frequency, um, you know, uh, ultraviolet radiation, right. vacuum ultraviolet radiation, produces six to eight billion watts of, of light energy, one forty billionth of a second. Either way, it's miraculous, right. and the body, of course, has to turn mechanically transparent at the same time. But um, this is a real important development. Right. It's okay. one more test that just shows 50 AD is the most likely time that the shroud... Well, it, it um, also, uh, also seems very promising because they make the note in here that this technique is non-destructive. So you can yep. do this without having to destroy a part of the shroud That's itself, right. right? Which means it can be repeated and repeated right. and repeated.
Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The other thing, uh, he made the point of how they did the test. What they did was they first tested it on linen samples that had previously been dated by yep. other techniques and uh, yep. had nothing to do with the shroud. And then they applied the same sample taken from the Shroud of Turin, and they were able mm -hmm. to show that they were getting accurate readings. Yeah, absolutely. And the same thing uh, with the other three tests done by Giulio Fonti. So, for example, he dated, uh, you know, through this technique, linens that had already been previously dated. Right. So he made the correspondence between, okay, uh, this amount of this uh, particular element was present here, uh, detected by a Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy, and look, okay, 3,000 years, 3,000 years, et cetera, wow. 1,000 years, 1,000 years, et cetera. So um, all of these things really do have credibility, but with the X-ray um, scattering, mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, 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 the white scattering um, X-ray technique, right. you can definitely come up with the same very uh, well-documented uh, series of tests wow. uh, for dating. So yeah. I think, uh, honestly, it's becoming more and more apparent with or without a new carbon dating. But uh, I can tell you this right now, um, in the future, one of the first things we're gonna be looking for uh, in the Shroud of Turin are some what's called cosmogenic isotopes that are in that shroud. Mm -hmm. So a cosmogenic isotope is one that's produced in a nuclear reaction. So if you start finding something like chlorine 35 or calcium 41, uh, which are, you know, these are mm -hmm. like uh, uh, isotopes that are produced in nuclear reactions, you start finding that in abundance in a linen cloth, uh, I'm telling you, it, it was the way that radiation was produced was the complete nuclear mm -hmm. disintegration of that body in a low temperature nuclear explosion. And when that happens, of course, it won't destroy the cloth, but it'll sure produce a very interesting image on the cloth. And uh, as they say, that makes all the difference. Okay, very good. On that point, we shall take our break here on Father Spitzer's Universe. Uh, when we come back, we'll have some of your questions, including one related directly to the Shroud. So stay just there, Father Spitzer, and stay there as well. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe. Thanks for staying with us. Two common defenses against evil is our topic from Father's book, of course, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. Unfortunately, it happens every day, but uh, that's why we do this show every week and why you should be watching EW10 every day. Well, Father Spitzer, here's a question related to the shroud that somebody sent us. It said, Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. I love all the great information you have gathered on the shroud. However, I've always wondered if it is the body of our Lord, why was he wrapped in a cloth all bloody and dirty? Would not his body have been washed and cleaned before wrapping and burial? And this is from James. Yeah, James, uh, the answer really lies in Scripture itself. Uh, as you may remember, um, the Sabbath is approaching. And so, of course, um, uh, that's why Joseph of Arimathea goes to, the, uh, to Pilate. He wants um, the, uh, bodies, um, the body of Jesus to be uh, uh, delivered over to them so they have time to bury him. Uh, before the Sabbath begins. Mm -hmm. Recall that, of course, uh, a dead body, um, you know, is considered, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, ritually, um, you know, not impure, but, uh, you know, ritually 
um, impure in the sense of uh, it's a Sabbath violator uh, to be doing such work uh, after the Sabbath has begun. And so um, essentially they are in a big rush uh, to get to the tomb, to get um, uh, the body laid in the tomb mm -hmm. so that they won't be touching uh, the body um, uh, during the time uh, when the Sabbath begins or doing any work uh, with a body during the time when the Sabbath begins. And so um, uh, they get him basically in, uh, you know, get the face cloth off of his face, uh, put him into the linen cloth, wrap the linen cloth, get the stone moved in front of the tomb before the Sabbath begins. Then why do the women come the next morning? They're coming the next morning because they really want to prepare the body the right way. Mm -hmm. So that's, of course, why they're coming to the tomb. Uh, they didn't get a chance to do it before the Sabbath, so they're coming after the Sabbath uh, to do it. And, of course, that's when they discover that the body is gone. That's when the angel gives mm -hmm. the revelation. And, uh, of course, that mm -hmm. initiates the Easter season that right. we're now celebrating. But that's the reason um, they were working against the Sabbath. Okay. Let me and ask they you. didn't want to be working with a body uh, right. during uh, the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They, uh, I had a question, and this struck me uh, you know, recently with some of the scripture readings about Thomas and putting your hands on his side mm -hmm. and into, you know, into the nail marks. And I'm th just mm -hmm. thinking in terms of having seen the movie The Passion, where obviously there's so much you know, uh, damage mm -hmm. to Jesus' skin, obviously, throughout his body. You've got the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the crown of thorns being put in. But it seems to be the only part they talk about that's still there, at least in the scriptures, is the holes in his hands and, let's say, in his side. But you don't hear anything about what happened to all of the other you know, things that happened to him from the scourging. Yeah, I mean, um, what we're left with is, you know, those two major significant, you know, um, you know, dimensions, mm -hmm. the spear and the nails, mm -hmm. uh, where his body was actually penetrated. But yeah, there were uh, lash wounds and things of that nature. Uh, I guess, you know, basically, I, I'd have to speculate on mm -hmm. this myself, because uh, exegetes really don't comment on it, but it's a right. good question. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea would be either, uh, you know, that was just, you know, maybe there is some sort of remnant mm -hmm. uh, there from those lashings. But, uh, you know, remember, in all of the um, Eastern narratives, Jesus is transformed. Right. There seems to, you know, so in Matthew's uh, uh, narrative, he doesn't say how the body's transformed, but it's clear that when Jesus appears, he's appearing like in glory. He looks like God mm -hmm. because when he appears, what does everybody do? Boom! They bow down and worship. And of course, you only do that when you're in the presence of God. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. So everybody bows down and worship. And then, as if to, you know, Matthew pounds the point home uh, even more. He's, you know, Jesus says, all power and authority on heaven and earth has been given over to me. Okay, we got it. So everybody's worshiping. And then, of course, all power and authority has been given over to him. He is transformed in glory. Then in the Lucan gospel, of course, everybody remembers that when Jesus appears, they think he is a spirit. Mm -hmm. So they think, you know, there's something. And he says, okay, now you can touch me. Look and see, it's not, uh, it's, it's not a 
spirit, it's me. But they think he's a spirit. So they're going back to Paul's thing that Jesus appears as a pneumatic on soma, mm -hmm. right? So a, a spiritual body. Mm -hmm. So his body again is transformed somehow spiritually. And then in John's gospel, of course, we always, John's much more um, symbolic, you know, in a way, uh, the way he talks. But the first clue that we get that Jesus is not your regular material body is he passes right through uh, the, the closed doors uh, in the room where he meets the apostles. So in the, the ordinary resuscitated corpses do not do this. So somehow there is a transformation, some kind of a spiritual transformation. But then John goes on to hint the same thing that Matthew has, right? So remember, Matthew says, is, right, all, everybody worshiped, you know, all power and authority, right, God, you know, has given over to him. So there's this kind of divine transformation. John starts changing the name of Jesus uh, from Lord without the definite article that we see before the resurrection narratives. Now, after the resurrection narratives start in John, all of a sudden, he never uses Hakurias of Jesus, the Lord of Jesus um, in the um, uh, ministry narratives. Mm -hmm. he, in the, but in the resurrection narratives, all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer just Lord, like Mr., Master, Sir, right, mm -hmm. uh, Lord. He, 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 it's now ha Kurios, the Lord that is used of Jesus. And when you start putting that definite article in front of Kurios, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name for God, uh, Adonai, or in, you know, properly Yahweh. So that's the Greek translation of the Lord in the sense of, of, um, of Yahweh, the divine name for uh, uh, that is given uh, by God to Moses. Mm -hmm. So now when you look at that and all of a sudden you start saying, how come the apostles uh, are saying the Lord, the Lord, the Lord? And of course, remember, we've got, um, you know, the narrator uses the word Jesus, mm -hmm. appears, Jesus does this, Jesus does that. But in the, on the lips of the apostles always, it's the mm -hmm. Lord. Uh, no one dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew very well, it was the Lord uh, who was appearing. And notice, of course, when Thomas, uh, finally Jesus says, okay, look at me, Thomas, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't just say, oh, Jesus, it's you. Mm -hmm. He says, the Lord, uh, the Lord of me, the God of me. In other words, you know, with the proper definite article in front of Lord and God, I mean, he's calling him mm -hmm. divine God, you know, uh, the name of, uh, you know, the, uh, the Lord. So, I mean, once you begin to see, you know, in Greek, you get the separation out. So you get the, the definite article that's put out there along with the mu of me. So the idea, uh, you know, for John is, of course, he's not just transformed in spirit and light. He's transformed in glory. Yet he maintains some dimension of his former embodiment. And the dimension of the former embodiment that he has amidst this glorification and spiritual presence, this divine presence, that contains at least... The, uh, the wound in the side, the wounds in the hands okay. and the feet. So we've got, you know, at least those principal wounds, right. but maybe there other ones are there okay. in that material con continuity that he has with his former embodiment. And maybe uh, he that just doesn't mention right. it, the, the wounds and 
and the hands and feet are right. inside are enough. Okay, just wondering. Uh, let me get yeah. to a quick question here before we get to the book, uh, especially interesting with what's coming up with the Supreme Court and, and uh, Roe versus Wade mm -hmm. in the next couple of yeah. months. Dear Father Spitzer, this has been troubling me for a long time. I had a friend who was underage and had an illegal abortion before they changed the law. She was afraid her alcoholic mm -hmm. father would hurt her if he found out she had gotten pregnant. What happens to the poor and uneducated if abortions become illegal again? People of means will continue to have abortions while the poor will be arrested and end up in jail. There has, been, there has to be a better solution to this complex problem. What do you think, Jerry? Well, Jerry, the first principle that you, you have to enact in ethics is you, you, you don't want to make the solution to a much worse problem, I mean, uh, uh, the solution to a, a problem, something that is far worse than the problem itself. So the idea of trying to avoid, for example, the difficulty that you mentioned, that a poor person is having a child she can't afford, or the father is going to beat the child, the solution is not to kill the child. That, that's a far worse thing than, of course, um, you know, uh, you know, dealing with the problem that you do have. Okay, so there's three really much better solutions to the kinds of problems that you're talking about. The first thing is to give a child up for adoption now. The list is so long, Jerry. It is so long that as so many people are looking for a child that they will pay everything. Uh, so this, she's not going to have an undue burden. Um, and first of all, that you give that child up for adoption, there will be people who will pay for everything. Number two, when this actually happens, uh, you know, there's going to be a million foundations that are going to be started by mm. Catholics, non-Catholics, people who believe that you shouldn't be killing babies to solve problems. Those foundations are going to be directly put in place to do what? To help young mothers who can't afford to bring their babies in the world, to bring them into the world and to help them out after they bring them into the world, if they want to keep those babies, if they don't want to keep those babies, to put them up for adoption. They're wanted by millions of people. We just have, we just, people are going abroad. Yes, it's a very good thing to go to China and to go to Russia and to go to Korea and to try and find a baby, but we, need babies or uh, definitely people, mothers, fathers who want them so desperately. So the, the foundation, uh, you know, uh, I mean, these foundations mm -hmm. are going to spring up and you, you will see uh, almost immediately that this will happen. So uh, the, the third thing is, well, what do you do about people who are, you know, like a father who's going to punish, uh, you know, the, the girl or something of that nature? What we need is education. You know that okay, these something happened here. This is not good, but let's not create two evils. Uh, you know, right. uh, here let's try to resolve this thing in a civilized way. Punishment is not the objective. Uh, the objective is let's try and find a positive result and let's find a way of learning from this in a positive way. But killing the child is not the solution. The solution is let's find civilized, educated ways of getting counseling and help uh, for those mm -hmm. who want to, you know, punish, uh, you know, a person or something of that nature. And let's find uh, the financial resources, which will automatically be there. I, I, I assure you, and they already are there. You put that baby up for adoption. I'm telling you, the parents will pay for every cent 
um, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, that you cannot afford in bringing that right. baby and giving that baby life. So for all intents and purposes, this is not the social, uh, you know, you know, destitution uh, mm -hmm. program that you're seeing, Jerry. It's, it's a much, much uh, better solution. We don't have to kill right. in order uh, to, to bring about a better society. We're preserving life. We're as actually asking mm -hmm. people to generously support that life out of their resources and to give parents who really want those children the life uh, that those kids really truly want to have. So uh, in, in short, um, I think that's the real solution. Right. Um, it's not going backwards to, you know, uh, right. you know, uh, and anyway, just remember, difficult situations, you know, they, they don't make for good pro, for good laws. Right. So, you know, right. if, if you just use, uh, you know, really hard problems to try and make law, uh, as, right. you know, many, many legal theorists have pointed out, that makes for the worst possible laws in the world. Right. Let's base laws on the, the goodness, the sacredness of human life, and let's start there and figure right. out ways to positively right. affirm it well, and, and so it, forth. It's the way we deal, with, in a sense, with the commandments or anybody living out their life. It's, mm -hmm. it's your culpability, but you don't change the law for everybody because you can find yeah. some extreme case where it seems exactly. like, well, I understand why this person was going to, their baby was going to be killed if they didn't do this immoral act. So, yeah. you know, how could you make a law that yeah. says that's immoral? Well, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. Just remember, hard problems make bad law. Bad law, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go to your book, Satan's Tactics. Speaking of tactics, mm -hmm. you you talk about uh, you know <laughs> yeah. a person who's you know a person who lacks religious and moral teaching. It's page one ninety seven, middle of the page, and community. He will open himself to complete deception. I thought this was interesting. Becoming convinced that his self limitation is really true freedom. Explain that. Yeah. So in other words, the uh, you know the idea uh, you know is that uh, um, you know uh, to define uh, freedom in terms of uh, you know I can get what I want when I want it. Um, if we you know do that um, you know in our heart of hearts, which of course this culture advocates mm -hmm. as often as it can. Uh, to define freedom merely as self-determination or even worse, getting my strongest emotion fulfilled when I want it fulfilled. Mm -hmm. If that is our view of freedom, then of course you can see it's not just in the abortion issue where the poor baby then becomes the victim of me, uh, you know, fulfilling this very primitive notion of freedom. But really, what is the, the true notion of freedom? Mm -hmm. what is, what's going to make my freedom come alive? What's going to make me come alive? Well, we were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Him. So if that's the case, then our true freedom would be that we have the discipline, that we have the, the, uh, we have the capacity uh, um, to, to move... Um, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, um, uh, program forward, you, mm -hmm. you know, to go and, and pursue God and to pursue, um, you know, perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home through him, to follow the teaching of Christ. And we want to discipline ourselves toward that because if we do do that, we're going to make more from our life than we could have ever right. made uh, previously. So, uh, uh, again, you right. know, the... Uh, the, the well, the image, be, uh, the prodigal son. I mean, he's the perfect example of somebody who thought, taking all my stuff, I'm going to have a good time, going to be free out from old, the, the old man and everything else.
Things are going to be great. Yep. Yep, and it turned out to be other than that My. as he lived with the pigs. So uh, anyway, so that's the, uh, um, um, you know, the upshot is true freedom is getting to God. True freedom is purifying our love so that we are not uh, always operating narcissistically through our own egos, mm -hmm. but actually operating as Jesus did for the sake of the other right. without expectation of reward. To you know, divorce ourselves from our sensuality in some way so that we can actually do something noble uh, that's not just feeding right. our senses 24-7, uh, but actually can uh, you know, give right. that up uh, in, in order for us to pursue something of great worth that will do something for somebody right. else, that will do something for the kingdom of God that will help to refocus people toward eternity rather than mere, mere sensual fulfillment. So if we can do that, uh, that's real freedom. Uh, if we have the discipline, what Plato would call the temperance mm -hmm. and the fortitude to move in that direction, that's the real notion right. of freedom. Getting what I want when I want it, that's the <laughs> most primitive notion of freedom there is. As you said, it winds up as the, in, in the misery of the prodigal son. Right. Yeah, and you talk about at this point, the person who's going through this likely is to fall into a state of confusion, meaninglessness, and desolation. And then you go on to talk about somebody, in a sense, trying to reach this person uh, and, and try to point out you know, what's missing in their life. And, and you make the uh, point that we have to be careful because there tends to be a defensive reaction. The how dare you suggest that my life is somehow superficial, yeah. unreflective, self-limiting, and oppressive to others. You're just jealous <laughs> of my success. That's your problem, Spitzer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's, uh, that is the problem. And uh, people think you're trying to take the moral high road on them rather than give them some advice uh, that might be very fulfilling to them. I mean, it, it's so funny that people don't want to hear that they're living for something that is so far beneath themselves that they could be doing so much more for others, mm -hmm. so much more for the kingdom of God, so much more for noble ideals, so much more for the culture than merely being successful. It's the difference between you know level one and level mm -hmm. two versus level three and level four. And that's why I pointed out in this very abstract way of you know the levels of happiness mm -hmm. and so forth. And I just talk about you know the comparison game, you know the depression, the fear of failure, the fear of loss of esteem, et cetera, et cetera. I do it because that's the way to approach this. If you tell somebody, wow, you know, you're living a really superficial life. You know, all you've got going for you in your quiver there is mm -hmm. all of your successes and a lot of sensual fulfillments. I mean, you got a lot of ego satisfaction. Mm -hmm. But what have you done for the world? What have you done for others? Uh, you know, and, and, and amidst all these talents and gifts that you obviously have, what have you done to make any difference to anybody beyond yourself? Okay, you belong to the Mensa Society. Good for you. Mm. Now, what did you do with that big brain of yours to make a difference? <laughs> do something noble for anybody. What did you do for the kingdom of God? What did you do to focus, refocus people out of their misery into something that makes life worth living? Not a thing? Well, you know, if you put it that way, they'll go, ah, you're trying to seize the moral high ground, for, you know, and you're, you think you're better than everybody else. Don't do it that way. Right. Speak in abstractions. Speak autobiographically. I have found this. I have found that. 
you know, hey, I heard this lecture, level one, level two, level three, level four, stay in level one and two, what are you going to get? Depression, anxiety, inferiority, superiority, fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, ego rage, ego blame, self-pity, jealousy, and all the other stuff that makes life so miserable. Go to level three and level four, everything's going to be much better, and you're going to leave a legacy in this world, a legacy of goodness for your family, your friends, for the kingdom of God, for your community, your organizations that you've worked with, and, and even, uh, even the church and, and, and culture and society, if you, if you have the, the good fortune to do all of that. Mm -hmm. But the point, of course, is you're leaving a legacy. You've made an absolute and ultimate positive difference with your life instead of just saying, I was smarter than you, more athletic than you, more beautiful than you, I was more successful than you. Look at me, I'm so good, but I did nothing with all the gifts I had. So, right. you know, abstraction really helps, autobiography really helps, but don't say you, mm. your life is superficial. Right. That's where the, you know, the insult comes in. And, and people work. shut down. Then they just shut down. Yeah, they shut down. Yeah, they, they shut down. They, they say, "Well, I start mm -hmm. from there. Now I'm not going to listen anymore because that that was too hurtful." You also talk yeah. about page 199. You're talking about Einstein and his theory and understanding certain things, and you go through the <laughs> uh, Michelson-Morley experiment, whatever that is. But anyway, we won't get into that. But you talk about the idea that imperfect understanding almost never equates to unreality. Please explain. Um, well, you know, the, the, the problem with imperfect understanding uh, is, you know, in order to make a judgment about what to do, you, you're, you're going to have to have understanding which precedes judgment. So if you have an, you know, uh, an imperfect understanding of, of something, you're likely to move to a goal that is not really uh, real. You're likely to be making a judgment on the basis of a, a lot of, of factual errors. And if you do that, you're likely to be doing the wrong thing rather than the right thing, even if it is your desire to do the right thing, you're being misinformed really does lead uh, into a, a whole series of, of uh, you know, wrong judgments. So the idea behind understanding precedes judgment is try every, the best you can, not only to get the right understanding of things, but the whole uh, purview. Try to get, you know, there are far more errors of omission than commission, right? So the, the idea is we are trying to get a, a complete uh, understanding, a complete explanation of things as best we can so that we don't leave out data, which data could be really, really important in our lives. I just, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, I'm going to make a, a real uh, important decision here, uh, and you say, well, have you ever considered, you know, uh, uh, something, you know, about God, mm -hmm. you know, religion? I don't, you know, that, that, that's, you know, uh, I exclude any kind of data like that from my decision. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, how about morality? You know, well, I, of course I want to be good. Well, do you think, uh, you know, maybe if there was a creator mm -hmm. that he would have something to say about morality? Uh, do you listen to your conscience? Ah, no, conscience is just, you know, I just, now that I've, you know, there's no God, I've discovered that conscience is merely a bunch of feelings there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I got it drilled into me when I was a kid. So, 
Freudian superego, you know, that, mm. that, you know, my parents and my teachers, they kind of drilled this into me, but now I'm liberated. Mm. You know, I don't have to worry uh, about conscience. So, the, of course, the minute you, you exclude all this stuff, mm. uh, you know, God's not in the picture, your conscience's not in the picture, uh, any kind of objective morality is not in the picture. I mean, you've well, had absolutely. it. You're, you're well, just, you know. Right. Reminds me of an old boss of mine who used to say in New York, he said, let's not let the facts get in the way of what we want to do here. So anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, so with that being said, you, uh, if you give us your blessing on the way out the door, okay? Yeah, that's the advice not to follow. <laughs> Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And dear Lord, send your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth upon us, the Holy Spirit of your goodness upon us. Help that spirit, help us to be open to that spirit in our conscience, open to that spirit in our thinking, open to that spirit in our questioning, so that in your spirit we may find the truth and in the truth be set really free to do the good for you, for your kingdom, and for our salvation and the salvation of others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Spitzer. Stay well. We shall see you next week. Likewise, all of Father Spitzer's books are available through the EWTN Religious Catalog as well. Next week, our show topic continues with two common defenses against evil. Much more ahead. EWTN bookmark this weekend, Abide in the Heart of Christ. Nice book by Father Joe Laramie, a great, great guy. And also, Heart of a Missionary, the story of Pauline Jericho, airing tonight, Wednesday, April 27th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Check it out. Very interesting EW10 live show and then the program as well. And I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time when we once more re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. We'll see you then.